When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, after the Senate Republicans' failure to repeal and replace Obamacare, our thoughts turn to single-payer. And one of our most significant single-payer systems is under attack. The VA, Suzanne Gordon, will report. And we'll also have a new episode of The Children's Hour. Don Jr., Jared, Ivanka, and Eric... Boy, are those kids in trouble this week. Amy Willens will comment. But first, the legal battle around the Russia investigations. We've heard about special counsel Robert Mueller assembling a team of prosecutors to investigate the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia. And we've heard about Trump assembling a war room of defense attorneys to fight them. For comment and analysis on the legal and political battle that's already underway, we turn to Bob Dreyfus. He's an investigative journalist specializing in politics and national security and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. He's also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone, and he's written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, Salon, and many others. He's appeared widely on TV and radio. He's also co-editor of The Populist.Buzz. Uh, Bob, welcome back. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, let's talk about the two teams facing off here, starting with the lawyers in the Trump war room. What do we know about them, starting with Trump's longtime lawyer, Mark Kasowitz? Kasowitz is the guy who's uh, named by Trump to be the, the point person for fighting back against all of these Russia uh, allegations. And, and yes, he's expanded his team to include some other people as well. He's a, a, a real estate and Wall Street lawyer, not, you know, a national security and political guy. And, and by the way, Kasowitz is one of only three lawyers that really Trump has had since the beginning of his, you know, career. The first was the famous Roy Cohen. Yeah. But Kasowitz is most interesting. And when you think about it, if you're under attack on the issue of did your campaign collude or cooperate with the Russians in 2016, it, you, you'd think you'd want a lawyer who was pure as the driven snow, who yes. wasn't somebody who himself was entangled in Russia conspiracies. But what I've found is that starting earlier this year, at the same time that he's representing Trump, Kasowitz also stepped in as lawyer for Russia's biggest bank, Sberbank, uh, that's S-B-E-R-B-A-N-K. And Sberbank is the largest bank in Russia, the third largest bank in Europe. It's state-owned. It's run by the, the Central Bank of Russia. Its executives are very close to Putin. It's yeah. a very tangled legal case uh, involving a, a corporate raid, a takeover, some skullduggery in the financial world and business world in Russia. But it turns out that several of the people involved in this Sberbank case are the same 
crew that was involved in this recent Trump Tower meeting in June that has just been discovered, the June 2016 meeting. Wow. When when uh, Donald, you know, Donald Trump Jr. and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his campaign manager, Paul Manafort, met with this group of Russians. And as you know, the, the Russians came supposedly armed with dirty information about Hillary Clinton that they yes. were going to provide to the Clinton to the Trump campaign right where did that dirty information came from it came from the russian state prosecutor the prosecutor general of russia whose name uh, is yuri chaika and chaika and his son are both involved in this burbank case that kasowitz is defending hmm. Uh, Cheka's son is the main owner in the company that gobbled up this other company using, you know, blackmail and intimidation and underhanded tactics. So, and there's other connections too. It raises a real question about why would Trump's lawyer get involved in this kind of skullduggery in Russia at the same time he's defending the president? It, it really boggles the mind. Kasowitz was in the headlines uh, last weekend because of this crazy string of emails he sent to some ordinary guy who told him he should resign. Uh, let me just quote the highlights of this string of emails from Mark Kasowitz. Uh, he emailed back, watch your back, bitch. I know where you live. I'm on you. You will see me. I promise, bro. Uh, close quote. This is the guy who's supposed to keep Trump under control? <laughs> well, he, he later apologized, of course, for that, that in, you know, and he admitted that that was you know, sent by him. But he is, he is known as a street fighter, as a brawler. He's, he's been described as the toughest lawyer on Wall Street. He, he prides himself on his kind of confrontational approach. And so Mark Kasowitz uh, emailed somebody who's uh, nobody, watch your back, bitch. Do you think that kind of approach will work with uh, Robert Mueller, the special counsel? Well, I don't think anybody is going to intimidate or dissuade Mueller and his team from going after Trump. I, you know, you've heard people talk about the, the old saying, there's an irresistible force and an immovable object. Yeah. Mueller really and truly is an irresistible force. He has a tremendous amount of firepower at his disposal. Um, he's got 15 lawyers now on his team, many of whom have a top-notch experience on real estate, on financial wrongdoing, on conspiracies. Some have experience in Russia. It's And, and he can expand that team even further as this goes along. He's not the kind of guy uh, who is going to be dissuaded uh, from following every possible lead. You know, you remember how Kenneth Starr, when he was investigating Clinton, started with a little Arkansas real estate thing, the whitewater yeah. thing, yeah. and expanded it in every different direction and ended up with Monica Lewinsky, right? That's exactly what Mueller can do. And there's really not much that Kasowitz can do or Trump himself to to, to stop him. He's got a tremendous team in place. Um, he's got access to a huge library of intelligence information that was put together over the course of the past year looking into this uh, Russian meddling in last year's election. The report that the intelligence community released in January outlining, you know, their case for the Russian meddling in the election 
was not the full report. That was just an a unclassified summary. And underneath that, there's a tremendous amount of classified information, everything from information from spies and, and electronic intercepts to every other aspect of our, what our intelligence community does, phone calls and emails and everything else to, to indicate that this is something that the intelligence community could really rely on. That, that's all stuff that Mueller can, can draw on in this, is in this investigation. And how is this going to work for us? Is Mueller going to keep the whole thing secret until the end when we get indictments or we don't get indictments? Will we find out along the way? Will there be clues or hints about what he's working on and where they're headed? Well, Mueller is notorious for not blabbing to the press and not leaking. On the other hand, we don't have to wait years to find out. I mean, if he finds evidence of wrongdoing, if he finds evidence of any kind of illegal uh, activity, he can issue indictments and then keep going. Alternatively, he can approach the people who he has the material against and try to flip them. And that's a big likelihood, I believe, in this thing where he'll approach people even at the level of General Flynn or Paul Manafort and say, okay, look, we've got you dead to rights. Now you give us the goods. And in that case, you know, he can use the potential indictment against somebody like a Flynn or a Manafort or a Carter Page or any of these other characters to flip them and get them to, you know, go after the, the, the bigger fish and ultimately, you know, prove the case that there was some sort of uh, potential collusion between Trump and the Russians. Uh, so, uh, yes, we, we may have to wait a while. It's very possible he could come out with indictments. Um, it's very possible that he'll wait until the whole thing is kind of uh, wrapped up, but it's it's on his timetable, uh, not Trump's. There are a couple of ways that Trump could stop this. First of all, he could fire Mueller. Second of all, he could pardon everybody. Let's think about that for a minute. Yes, there, there's ways of Trump resisting, uh, but these ways are mostly, you know, suicidal, political suicide, I think. And one thing he cannot do is he cannot stop the House from launching an impeachment proceeding. So if the Democrats succeed at retaking the House in November 2018, they will run the Judiciary Committee, they will gain the power of the subpoena, they can draft articles of impeachment. What's the relationship between that process and what the special counsel is doing now? Well, of course, the House can move toward impeachment um, independently of anything that Mueller does or, or doesn't do. Yes. Um, but presuming that there's some fire there where there's been smoke so far and that Mueller comes up with evidence of actual uh, either overt wrongdoing in terms of collusion with the Russians or simply obstruction of justice on the part of Trump where he in firing Comey and doing other things and saying it was because of Russia, uh, concludes that the White House is, is trying to block, you know, investigations and obstruct the, the process. That becomes grist for an impeachment. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's unlikely. I, I, I'm not a lawyer. I, I've heard people say that you can't indict a sitting president. You can certainly indict all of the people around him, uh, including his uh, son-in-law, Jared Kushner, including former officials and so forth. But 
to get the president himself, he would probably have to recommend, and Mueller could do that, um, that you know Congress then follow up on whatever report he might produce. I want to take a step back here and just look at the argument that's going on among some of our friends. I've heard many times that Russiagate is an unhealthy obsession on the part of diehard Hillary supporters trying to find an excuse for her defeat, and that would be a lot better for us to try to find a way to win back the white working-class voters she lost. Are you a diehard Hillary supporter trying to find an excuse for her defeat? No, no, of course not. I don't think... I don't, I don't think it's impossible to do three or five or eight different things at once, whether you're a citizen concerned about this stuff or whether you're the Democratic Party. I mean, stopping Trump's health care bill, stopping his coming tax reform bill, fighting other issues that Trump is launching in, in Congress and elsewhere uh, is, is a huge priority and that, you know, the Democrats seem to be, I think, doing pretty well in combating this stuff. Um, Putting together a platform for 2018 that appeals to people who might have thought Trump was their savior, uh, mistakenly, of course, last time around, uh, um, is something that the Democrats can certainly do. But this is not some witch hunt, as Trump calls it, by uh, the Democrats. This is an FBI investigation um, supported by the work of the U.S. intelligence community, which was concerned, A, that the Russians meddled in the election by hacking into the Democratic National Committee and John Podesta's account and using bots and trolls and other Internet skills to circulate fake news and affect the outcome of the election. That's something that the FBI is actually investigating. At the same time, we know from what Comey said before he was fired that the FBI is investigating Trump for collusion. So this is real. This is not some you know diversion uh, concocted by the Democrats. This was something that the, the FBI and the CIA and the National Security Agency determined was a, a threat to the United States, and they're investigating it. I, I can't see why the Democrats can't you know, highlight that investigation while also doing the basic work of trying to govern the country. Last question. Uh, I understand what you've been telling us, the news that uh, about Mark Kasowitz and his relationship to the uh, Russian Central Bank is going to be the first of a series of reports you're writing for thenation.com. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I'm going to be writing a, a regular kind of weekly piece for The Nation, trying to unpack and sometimes just simply explain the latest news and developments with the Russia investigation. So uh, I'll be looking at not just the Mueller investigation, but also what the Senate and House Intelligence Committees and the Justice Department are doing, uh, what the Senate Judiciary Committee is looking into, and the various you know leaks and revelations that come from the press, hopefully break some myself, to to sort of report on and analyze the course of this whole uh, Russiagate phenomenon, which which is, um, I think, clearly, you know, the biggest story of 2017 so far. It's the biggest story of 2017. Bob Dreyfus, read the first of his weekly reports on the Russia investigations at thenation.com now. Bob, thanks for talking with us today. 
Thank you, John. It's been my pleasure. Now it's time for the Children's Hour. Stories about Don Jr., Jared Ivanka, and little Eric. Boy, are those kids in trouble this week. (laughs) And so we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation, former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. She's best known for her award-winning books on Haiti, most recently Farewell, Fred Voodoo. And we heard her last week on Democracy Now! Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Well, Don Jr., of course, made the news big time last week with those New York Times revelations that during the campaign he'd met with a Kremlin-connected Russian lawyer who promised dirt on Hillary. At first, we were told this was a meeting to discuss Russian adoptions attended by himself, his brother-in-law, Jared Kushner, and the head of the Trump campaign at that point, Paul Manafort, along with the Russian woman lawyer. Turns out that wasn't quite the whole picture. Yes, the room gets more and more stuffed as as you hear more and more from Donald Trump Jr. In fact, it reminded me immediately of the overstuffed cabin scene in the Marx Brothers movie, A Night at the Opera. Oh, He's yes. shipboard and Groucho Marx keeps saying as more and more people arrive in his tiny cabin, I don't know. This isn't the way I pictured an ocean voyage. <laughs> <laughs> so in this one, In the Trump Tower meeting, you keep expecting the manicurist to arrive (laughs) the way she does in the cabin meeting. I just want to take a step back here. Over the last several weeks, we've talked a lot here about Jared. We haven't talked much about Don Jr. Don't you feel a little sympathy for the poor guy having to go through life as Donald Trump Jr.? Yeah, I think it was a fatal name. So when Donald Trump Jr., or as I call him, Baby Don, um, turned 12 years old. That was the year that his father dumped his mother and uh, took up with Marla Maples. His mother, Ivana. Ivana Trump. And the the quite famous quote now from that era is little Donald yelling at his dad, you don't love us. You don't even love yourself. You just love your money. Yeah. So what happened between that time and now in Donald Trump Jr.'s life? Now he's 39, so it's a considerable amount of time. During that time, he was a party boy in college, very big party boy. Like it's the four years in a coma, woke up with a diploma situation, I believe. (laughs) And uh, and he doesn't really deny that. Um, And he said it was very hard to have that name. And And he went to his father's alma mater. Yes. Who knows why? Mm-hmm. But anyway, he uh, he grew up. He makes a lot of bloopers all the time. He's very aggressively outspoken about silly things. He called Syrian refugees. He compared them to Skittles candy. So, yeah. So and how that, about his wife? How did he meet his wife? Uh, well, I think that um, Donald Trump Sr., Papa Don, introduced the two of them. He saw her at a party. She was very pretty, actually, and uh, said, I want you to meet my son. One hopes they didn't have a relationship before that. And then they got married. And they have five children. They got married at Mar-a-Lago, his father's estate. So that's the story of Don Jr., which led him from a life of unhappiness to being a serious junior to his father and to his uh, role in recruiting, attempting to recruit uh, Russians with in dirt on, on Hillary. Jared was at that meeting. What has Jared said to explain his role there? 
Jared was asked by his brother-in-law to come to a meeting where important information was going to be given. I believe Jared saw the emails. I believe they were forwarded to Jared, the famous emails that uh, Donald Jr. tweeted the other day. And uh, so they were expecting some information on Hillary, incriminating information provided by Russian government sources, as the emails say quite bluntly. And Jared is in bigger trouble than that meeting. That There was that story last week that McClatchy published reporting that the Justice Department and the House and Senate Intelligence Committees are looking into whether the Trump campaign's digital team coordinated with the Russian government during the 2016 election. The head of the Trump campaign's digital team, for some reason, was Jared Kushner, What was all this about? Well, this is about Russian hackers using bots and trolls. If you don't know what they are, neither do I. But apparently they are ways to insert fake news into social media in a broad way. And whether they use that ability directed by the Trump campaign in specifically targeted demographic areas that were crucial to winning the number of votes in the Electoral College to put Trump over the top. That's essentially what's being argued in that in that story. And Jared's connection, I don't why I don't quite understand why Jared is the expert on digital and internet technology here, but that was his job in the campaign. Yes, true. Jared is often doing things that he's not capable of doing. But nonetheless, if you're the head of it, you're responsible for it. So if that happened under his watch, that would be a very severe problem for him. But it is also a problem for him that he was at this meeting. And in fact, the only reason we know about this meeting is because Donald Trump Jr. made the mistake of inviting him and he made the mistake of coming. Then when he revised his security clearance papers, on which he had omitted almost every meeting he took with foreign officials. He had to put this meeting down, and that is, I believe, how it came to light. And I just learned from you that Jared and Ivanka, despite their Jared's serious legal jeopardy here, uh, has been partying in the Hamptons. Of course, wouldn't you? I'd rather party in the Hamptons than than be undergoing what they're undergoing in Washington. They're not Washingtonians. They're not part of the swamp. There was a huge party given by Lolly Weymouth. Lolly Weymouth is a socialite, but she's also the senior associate editor of the Washington Post through nepotism, if I may add that. Her mother was the editor of the Washington Post, the publisher of the Washington Post, Catherine Graham. And at this party, it was a very, um, I call it a bipartisan party. (laughs) Ivanka was there with Jared, Kellyanne Conway, And Lolly Weymouth is not a known Republican. Steven Spielberg, also not a known Republican, was there. David Koch of the Koch brothers. A known Republican. A known Republican. George Soros, a known Republican enemy. And Trump, not friendly person. Right. Chuck Schumer, not someone the Trumps like. Carl Icahn, Dina Powell, the deputy national security advisor in the Trump White House. Both former police commissioners, Ray Kelly and Bill Bratton. And, uh, you know, various members of the global financial community, all at this party, sipping champagne together side by side, making you kind of wonder who's running the world. So what I see in this is the evidence of, and it's obvious, it's all over this whole story, that there's a supranational elite 
at work. I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, and I'm not. They do what they do because it's in their interest to do what they do. And the Trumps are a part of this as a real estate conglomerate that with global interests. The Russian oligarchs are a part of this. They know each other. There are entertainment figures in this, like Emin Agalarov, an incredible figure, and his dad, who is an Azerbaijani uh, oligarch who's been incorporated into the Putin system. And a person like Natalia Veselnitskaya, the lawyer who uh, organized the meeting with Don Trump Jr. and the rest of the crew, she's just attached to many of these influential uh, supranational figures in Russia. And these people, no matter how they try to portray this attorney as a super patriot, they're beyond patriotism and nationalism, and they're they're functioning in some other world. And I think that's why Don Jr., having grown up in that kind of world, doesn't even understand what it means to have Russians offer you a thing of value like information on Hillary Clinton. And we are told so often that the two parties have never been far, farther apart, that <laughs> there's a complete breakdown of comity in Washington, D.C., but here leaders of the Democratic Party and leading Democratic funders partying with Kellyanne Conway and Jared and Ivanka and David Koch. It makes you think that rather than send Jared Kushner to the Middle East to make peace, maybe they should send Lolly Weymouth to the Middle East to make <laughs> peace because she knows how to bring those two parties together. But guess what? It's not that hard. So we've we've talked about uh, Don Jr. Uh, we've talked about Jared, the brother-in-law, Don Jr., is the number one son with the father's name. But but isn't Ivanka, his younger sister, really more successful, more famous, more loved by her father? She's the apple of Donald Trump Sr.'s eye. Obviously, he adores her. He thinks she's a genius. <laughs> That's uh, the, lo- the bar may be low in the Trump family. And yet Ivanka's star continues to dim for the rest of us. It's dimming, yeah. Of course, there's the way she conducts her business around the world. It's in the garment industry. The global garment industry is a what we call a Shonda <laughs> all over the world. It's not only Ivanka, who's really a shameful employer, but of course, since she's championing women's rights in the United States and violating them around the globe in her factories, it's dimming her star a little bit. But I also think she's in hiding, frankly. I think that she sees that her husband is a target right now of a justifiable anger on the part of a lot of people whom she has known through her life. And she doesn't want to also participate in that. And her brother is a target of it. And uh, I guess there's she'd rather be out of that for the moment. There's one more Trump child that we haven't talked about yet. Let's talk about Eric Trump. Eric Trump has always been sort of in the background. And what was it that Stephen Colbert said about Eric? Well, Stephen Colbert has said a lot of things about Eric because there's so many, like, really amusing photographs of the three of them with Eric looking like the even dimmer wit. And uh, Eric just doesn't seem to have any sense whatsoever. But Colbert gave a long rant about the, the meetings and Don Trump Jr. and Don Trump Jr. tweeting out these emails that were so incriminating of Don Trump Jr. that that Colbert said he's his own deep throat. <laughs> but at the end of his whole rap about Don Trump Jr., he turns to the camera and he says, I have to issue an apology. Eric Trump 
I'm sorry. We always thought you were the dumb one. (laughs) So that was uh, that was Eric Trump's moment in the sun. He's known as Kusai Trump after the uh, Saddam Hussein son. Eric is in trouble, though, on his own about something completely separate. This charity, this. So he has a charity for to help kids with cancer, as he points out, kids under the age of 33. And (laughs) what could be wrong with helping kids who have cancer? Nothing, as Eric Trump points out, unless, as Stephen Colbert pointed out, and Keith Olbermann, unless you are uh, raking 12 percent off the top for expenses after having promised your donors that every cent goes to the charity. So Eric sees it one way and other charitable contributors see it another and, way. And the expenses. The, this charity hosts celebrity golf tournaments. Right. And where do the expenses go? Into the family golf club. The Trump Organization. Because the Trump Organization doesn't have enough money to spend on those, apparently. They want to take it out of the charity's funds. And there's one more Trump, Tiffany. Tiffany is never in the news. Because she's the smart one. <laughs> Okay. This has been the Children's Hour with Amy Willens. Amy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you. As the Senate Republicans fail in their campaign to repeal and replace Obamacare, our thoughts turn to single-payer. And one of our most significant single-payer systems is under attack. The VA, now called the Veterans Health Administration, the VHA, it provides medical services to 9 million people. But Republicans now want to privatize at least some of its services. For that story, we turn to Suzanne Gordon. She's a healthcare journalist and contributor to The Nation, author of the book, Battle for Veterans Healthcare Dispatches from the Front Lines of Policymaking and Patient Care. She's written many other books about healthcare policy and labor conditions, and she also teaches at the UC San Francisco School of Nursing. Suzanne Gordon, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, in the United States, just to review, we have several different healthcare systems. For older people, we have Medicare, it's a single payer insurance system where the government reimburses private doctors chosen by individuals. For people with jobs, many jobs come with employer-sponsored private health insurance. And for veterans of military service, the government runs hospitals and pays doctors to provide medical care, and there's no insurance premiums. That's the British system. It's like the National Health Service. Republicans call that socialized medicine. It's something they've been campaigning against for more than 50 years. Suzanne, what the Repu- what would the Republicans like to do with the Veterans Health Administration, the VHA? Well, the, the Republicans even, and, and sadly, John, even some Democrats would like to partially or fully privatize the VA. I mean, at the extreme, they want the VA, which is now a payer of services like Medicare, but as well as a provider of services like the National Health System in Britain, they would like um, it to be a payer of services, and the taxpayer would, would essentially fund private sector providers, doctors, nurses, PTs, hospitals, you name it, to give care to veterans. But in the but you're also seeing people who want to do what I call 
creeping privatization or stealth privatization, a kind of bleed-it-dry strategy where more and more money that should go to the provision of care and research and teaching in the Veterans Health Administration would be given to private sector providers of all sorts. Well, of course, the biggest uh, weapon in the Republican arsenal is the horror stories from the VA hospital in Phoenix a couple of years ago. What did happen at the VA hospital in Phoenix? Well, they they had a, a imposed a very unrealistic performance system for wait times, uh, asking people to give veterans appointments in with for in within fourteen days of they're asking for them and and anybody in healthcare knows that that's a completely unrealistic standard because it's very rare that you can see a physician or other provider in 14 days but they impose this from the top and then some places like Phoenix which had an influx of 25,000 veterans each winter for 3 or 4 months it's very hard to staff a healthcare system when you have 25,000 patients coming for three and four months and then leaving, you know, it's very hard to recruit uh, uh, doctors, nurses, mental health professionals for just a short period of time. They are inundated by this influx of veterans and, and they and other systems, other hospitals and, and, and facilities in the VHA had problems fulfilling that. And unfortunately, uh, some administrators who were very bad apples tried to game the system and pretend that they were actually living up to these to these requirements. And, you know, some VA facilities still have trouble uh, with access because it's very hard to get doctors and nurses and mental health professionals to work in rural areas. It's very hard to get people to work when, by federal statute, they aren't allowed to be paid market rate salaries. And increasingly, as you're seeing a lot of journalists bashing the VA and never saying anything good or reporting anything good about the VA, it's very hard to get people to work in a system where they're going to be constantly battered over the head with by the media and nobody is going to say anything good about them. So they're sacrificing financial remuneration, and they're working with very difficult patients, and then they're getting very little credit for what they do, not only from the media and Congress, but from VA leadership. And when you say they're working with very difficult patients, you're talking about the complex medical issues presented by people who have, especially those who have been in combat, which are quite different from the problems that you and I have. Yeah, and I think we have to disabuse ourselves of the notion that it's only the combat veteran that has these complex problems because you can have never left the United States and have PTSD because you had a sadistic Marine drill sergeant or you got into a motor vehicle accident like the head of Paralyzed Veterans of America and were paralyzed. So uh, the military is a, is a... An agency of employment, the Department of Defense, in which you pretty much everybody has very dangerous jobs and they're subject to noise pollution and and all kinds of toxic exposures and and you name it, you know, um, I mean, it's not just people in combat and there's military sexual trauma because there's a lot of harassment. So basically the VA takes care of patients who have 
um, a high rate of pain from carrying around 70-pound or 100-pound packs. Uh, they have a high rate of suicide. They have a high rate of mental illness, and they have all kinds of problems due to military service. And, of course, that's compounded when you're in combat. The critics of the uh, VA tell us that they have not done a good job with what uh, today's recent veterans really need, and that's treatment of PTSD, addiction, suicidal uh, thoughts. You say the VA has developed the only functional mental and behavioral health care system in the United States. What do you mean? Well, the United States um, mental health system and behavioral health system and addiction, you know, substance abuse system is pretty much non-existent. And um, it's as Thomas Insull, who was the director of the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, uh, said when he left his position recently that it's a scandal and uh, it's completely broken. And jails and prisons are our mental health system. And the VA has a very robust mental health system. It is uh, has developed the gold standard treatments for PTSD, for uh, major depressive disorder, for all kinds of other mental illnesses. It deals with mi- m- uh, military sexual trauma. And what is even more impressive is that it has integrated primary care and mental health care. So a veteran who sees their primary care provider and says, I'm having a problem with my wife or I'm having problems sleeping or all kinds of things is can be walked down to a mental health provider who's right there embedded on the unit and uh, in what's called a warm handoff and treated on the spot for mental health problems. This is really, really almost unheard of in the in the private sector healthcare system. And the other thing is that veterans are routinely screened uh, in primary care or in you know when they go to specialty care for all kinds of conditions, mental health conditions like PTSD. There's a special screening system. So, uh, and they're doing an immense amount of work on preventing suicide, more so than any other healthcare system in the nation, maybe even in the world. So, a lot of times, unfortunately, people who cover the veterans' affairs are really not healthcare reporters, and they don't really know about the broader context of American healthcare. So there's very little discussion of when when they're attacking the VHA for some serious problems, there's very little questioning of compared to what. Um, what are VA wait times compared to the private sector? What are VA, what's the suicide problem in the VA compared to the private sector? If you look at veteran suicide, veterans are have a much a reduced risk of suicide if they're treated in the VA than if they're treated in the outside. And I also learned from your piece uh, for the nation that the VHA uh, runs several programs to reduce homelessness among vets and help veterans find employment and adjust to civilian life when they leave active duty. Tell us, tell us about those. Well, the the VHA really is is not just a healthcare system; it's a social justice system, and they have a very very robust program to end veteran homelessness. and And to end veteran homelessness, you have to provide healthcare services, mental health services, um, new employment aid, financial aid, 
There's a veterans treatment court system because a lot of veterans, particularly with mental health problems and addiction problems, get caught up with the law, and they have established uh, veterans treatment courts. There's a very, very robust effort to help veterans adjust to civilian life when they leave the military because a lot of people have a really hard time uh, having been socialized from the age of 18 to to function in a military kind of black and white us or them environment to coming back to civilian life. Uh, the big political question here is about this week's news, which is, of course, the failure of the Republicans in the Senate to repeal and replace Obamacare. So a lot of us, especially at the nation now, are talking about what we really need is a single-payer system to augment or to replace Obamacare. And most advocates think they're talking about Medicare for all, that is the government reimbursing private doctors. Do you think the VA model, government hospitals staffed by government employees, offers a viable uh, alternative, a better alternative to Medicare for all? I totally do. I mean, I think a Medicare for all is better than what we've got. But people who are not interested in veterans, people who don't know a veteran, people who've never met a veteran, but who care about the future of American health care, really need to find out about the VA's stellar model of care. A lot of single-payer and, and, and national health care advocates are more up on the latest of what's going on in Europe or, or Taiwan than they are yes. on and what's going on in the VA and how that's a model of care. I'm really saying to people, look, you've got to look at the VA and you've got to defend the VA because it's, it's got great care and it's a homegrown model. And that's why the Koch brothers hate it and want to and wanna discredit it. Suzanne Gordon, read her piece at thenation.com on the attack on the VA, America's biggest publicly funded, fully integrated health care system. Suzanne, thanks for talking with us today. John, thank you. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the celebration of Latino baseball history at this year's All-Star Game. That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edgeofsports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles by Ernesto Orellano with additional technical assistance from Justin Allen. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.